We've heard the New Testament lesson read for your hearing. For our homiletic emphasis, I want to hone in on Acts chapter 10, verse 40. But God raised him on the third day. But God raised him on the third day. With your prayers and the Holy Spirit's power, I want to preach from the topic, the omnipresent conjunction. The omnipresent conjunction. My friends, my twins are now in middle school, seventh grade. There was a time that I enjoyed helping them with their homework. <laughs> it's not the case any longer. Simple addition, subtraction, and division has now turned into algebra and geometry. Science no longer involves fun experiments like creating volcanoes with baking powder. They're using terms from chemistry and physics. And I have to admit that anything STEM-related evokes terrible memories for me. I kind of have a post-traumatic stress disorder from high school. I am a professor of religious studies, not by accident. <laughs> Yet there's one area that I can still help them. One area, Mr. Wu, that I can still be of assistance, and that's with the humanities. I'm always asking them, do you have any writing tonight? And whenever it's the case, yours truly goes into full geek mode. Yellow pad, check. Ballpoint pen, check. Thesaurus and dictionary, check. Writing space cleaned off on the kitchen table, check. So you can imagine I've been in heaven all week because this week Zora Neale had a research paper on apartheid South Africa and Elijah Mays had a paper due on the Russian Revolution. And for the past five days, yours truly has been relevant in his household. <laughs> Never. Whenever we sit down to write, there are a few best practices that we recite together. Formulate a clear thesis. Draft an outline of key points that will support your thesis. Variegate your sentence structure, long, short. Start and end each paragraph with a powerful, pithy sentence whenever possible. And finally, control your transitions. You never want your thoughts to come off as inchoate and disjointed. Be intentional about your use of conjunctions. Because, however, though, and, but, or, these are all slight but essential components of meaning making. 
For if you grew up in the 1970s and 1980s watching Saturday morning cartoons like I did, you learned this lesson watching Schoolhouse Rock. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? <laughs> Hooking up words, phrases, and clauses. Oh, I forget, y'all didn't watch TV growing up. <laughs> Conjunctions, they add nuance. Conjunctions, they complicate narratives. Conjunction, they establish meaning. Conjunctions, they point to ultimate outcomes. For instance, a sentence from Zora Neale's paper this week read, blacks, Indians, coloreds, and, and sympathetic whites aligned to fight the laws of apartheid. The South African government banned the ANC for 30 years. However, the ANC operated underground and outside of South Africa as people like Albert Latule and Oliver Tambo helped to weaken the laws of the apartheid era. My baby's a writer. <laughs> Nuance, complexity, and a vision of an outcome were all established by her intentional use of conjunction. And my brothers and sisters, I want you to keep this in mind as we consider today's New Testament lesson. It comes from the book of Acts. The book of Acts, also known as the Acts of the Apostles, provides an account of the early church. The book spans three decades following the crucifixion of Jesus. We witness followers, once disciples, turned into apostles or delegates of Jesus. We see Peter, we see James, and we see ultimately Paul become envoys. That's literally the meaning of apostles, envoys. They spread Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. It's a renewal movement within Judaism at the time. It was a renewal movement as Jesus wasn't teaching anything new per se. But rather, Jesus was reviving the rich tradition of love and justice from the laws and from the prophets. And these were the teachings that the Jesus movement spread from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, the apostle Peter meets a Roman officer named Cornelius. Cornelius is a high-ranking official. The Bible says that he headed up an Italian cohort of about 600 soldiers. But we also learned something else about Cornelius. Cornelius is a God-fearer. In the first century, God-fearer was a description for non-Jews who appreciated the teachings of Judaism. These were Gentiles who would attend local synagogues throughout the empire. And it's Cornelius who requests that Peter come to his house and share with his household the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here it is. Verse that we read for your hearing that Peter unleashes a sermon. And it's a sermon that I believe captures and encapsulates the meaning of Easter Sunday morning. 
Uh, the first point comes when Peter says, I now understand that God shows no partiality. Looking at Cornelius' sincerity, looking at Cornelius' zeal for the faith, Peter knows for certain what Jesus was talking about. Oh, Peter realizes now what Jesus had been trying to teach them, that the kingdom of God is big enough for all. As Peter realized that if I'm going to share the same kingdom of God that I heard Jesus preach and teach about, then I have to confess something. Now I truly understand. I truly understand that God's love is impartial. And Cornelius Peter saw a man that was different from him ethnically and socially. But he remembered how Jesus dealt with difference. He recalled Jesus healing the Roman centurion's daughter. He recalled Jesus' compassion toward a Syrophoenician woman. He recalled how Jesus treated the Samaritans. And Peter realized that this is what Jesus had been trying to teach him and all of the other disciples. God's love is for the Jews and the Gentiles. It's for the Hebrews and the Greeks. It's for the Judean and the Italians. Oh, my brothers and sisters, this was radical news for those in the ancient world. For gods were often associated with tribes and specific regions. Deities were often meant to establish physical boundaries and cultural borders. But here Peter declares that God's love is impartial and it's inclusive. I can imagine this morning that Cornelius appreciated this message just like some of us might appreciate this message today. For we still live in a world defined by partiality and defined by exclusion. Think about the questions we ask one another. Think about the questions we typically ask when we first encounter somebody around here. Where did you go to school? Where did you grow up? What is your concentration? What do you do for a living? If we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that more often than not, these are questions that we use to classify and categorize rather than to engage and to embrace. We measure one another in order to decide up front if they are our kind of people. But there's also physical markers. There's also physical bodily markers that categorize and contain. Some never even get the benefit of a question. We carry our honor or our shame on our physical bodies. Maybe it's our gender. Maybe it's our skin color. Maybe it's the texture of one's hair. Maybe it's a physical ability or a disability. Maybe it's even one's physical shape. We use physical markers to decide who belongs where. We use physical traits to decide who deserves what. But I'm so glad this morning that none of that matters to God. 
Tall and short, slim and wide, light and dark, male, female, and trans, red, yellow, black, and white, we're all precious in God's sight. Why? Because love, God's love, God's love is impartial and it's inclusive. But though God's love is impartial and though God's love is inclusive, uh, let me be clear about something here. Peter makes this clear. This does not mean that there are no expectations of us. Peter's not preaching a cheap grace or an easy love song here. Peter makes clear. Peter makes clear our ethical obligations. In verse 35, it says that God's love is impartial across the nation for all those who fear God and do what is right. Well, what is right? Well, I think I can quote the book of Micah here. Child of God, you already know what is good to do justice to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. In other words, if we accept God's impartial and inclusive love, then we should act accordingly toward one another. Friends, we're living in ugly times. We're living in dangerous times. Patriotism has devolved into nationalism. Cultural particularity is confused for ethnic tribalism. And the ideal of a global beloved community is being jettisoned for an insecure xenophobic provincialism. We've made God as small as our hearts. And God has become as narrow as our thinking. This is why this is why we're witnessing so much violence across the globe in the name of an angry and hateful God. Guided missiles are being shot by misguided men. We send drones to attack those from afar, yet close our borders to those who are near. We beat our chest and we declare country first, even if it means that we think about Christ's compassion last. I'm here to say, we've got God twisted up. We've reduced the cross to a personal adornment that we just wear around our necks. Some of us have used the salvation of Christ simply to baptize our own bigotry. As the author Anne Lamott put it, it's safe to say that we've made God in our own image when God hates all the same people that we do. Oh, but I'm here to say this morning, I'm here to say that Easter can serve as a reminder. Easter can serve as a reminder. Peter's sermon can serve as our inspiration. God's love is impartial. God's love is inclusive. And God's love is expansive. God's love is big enough for the Jew and the Gentile for the Judean and the Roman, for the Christian and the Muslim, for the Syrian and the American, for the Mexican and the Canadian. God's love is the inclusive conjunction that connects us all to one another. No matter where you come from, no matter what language you dream in, no matter your skin tone, in God's kingdom, we can all say it's no longer I, but it's you and me. 
There's no more them or they, but it's us and we. We can march onward to the victory. Why? Because we are one in the spirit of God's love. Oh, God's love is impartial. God's love is inclusive. God's love is always an and. It's expansive. Oh, but I can hear somebody asking the question this morning. Well, Professor, aren't you erasing theological differences? There's a difference between Christian Muslims and Jews. There's a difference between believers and agnostics. There's a difference between the devout and between the atheists. Aren't we called to treat our own like brothers and sisters? Well, this is the same sort of theological question that the exclusive religious elite used trying to trip up Jesus. They asked him, Jesus, what's the greatest of the law? What's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, who is our neighbor then, Jesus? And this is in when some of you may remember Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable of a good Samaritan. For when a certain man fell among thieves, it was not a priest or a Levite who stopped to help him, members of the Jewish elite, but rather it was a Samaritan, a class of people that the religious elites literally viewed as dogs. It was a Samaritan that proved to be the neighbor. And I believe if we were to remix this parable for the contemporary moment, I can imagine how it might sound. It might sound something like a military veteran was robbed along one of America's highways. Let's make this military veteran a Mexican-American. Well, first a man walked by. This man was a professed patriot. He was a real American. He was wearing a red hat that even said, make America great again. This man looked upon the man that had been robbed and he maybe thought to himself, well, he's probably in this country illegally. Maybe he should go back to his country. So the man kept on walking. Then a young lady walked by, a soon-to-be Harvard college graduate. She looked upon the man, and immediately she started thinking about structural injustice. She had on her Feel the Burn shirt. She thought to herself, it's a shame how white privilege and systemic evil will create these sorts of conditions for this poor Mexican man. But then the alarm on her iPhone went off. It was her calendar. She was going to be late for her interview with Goldman Sachs. <laughs> so she just kept on walking. Yet a Syrian refugee walked by. A Syrian refugee saw the man and 
she was reminded of the grace that she had received by a welcoming community in this country. She was reminded of how her fellow Muslims and how local Christians helped with her family's resettlement. And thus, it was this woman who stopped to help this man in need. And so thus, I asked the question, who is our neighbor? I asked the question, how big is your God? This is what Jesus was trying to teach us about God's love. It's impartial. God's love is inclusive. Jesus wants us to consider the size and scope of God's love for all of us. But before I take my seat, I just want to add there's one more thing. Recall what we noted about conjunctions. Conjunctions expand meaning. God can love you and me. But conjunctions can also reshape the contours of a narrative. For look at another conjunction in Peter's sermon. For after preaching about God's impartial love, Peter's clear about something. Oh, preaching about God's love and radical inclusive love put Jesus on a dangerous path. Because there are always those in our society who embrace partiality. There are always those in our society that work hard to defend privilege. So because Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed, the Bible says, Peter pulls no punches. Peter says, they hung him from a tree. But that's verse 39. But what does the next verse say? Verse 40. Oh, Peter interjects something to change the course of this narrative. He interjects a conjunction. He says, they hung him from a tree, but God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. God's love is impartial. God's love is inclusive. And I'm also here to tell somebody, God's love intervenes. This is the meaning of Easter. New life, new opportunities, the resurrected hope, new possibilities. Easter, it's Easter. I want somebody here, I want somebody here this morning to take a second, oh, and dance through your memory. I want you to consider all the negative clauses of your life that you've experienced at one point or another. Consider all of life's storylines that have had you at your wit's end. Consider all the times that you didn't think you were going to make it and you didn't know if you were going to make it through. Consider all the times, oh, that you thought that it was the end, that you thought that it was over. But then think back about how God intervened uh, for some of us. For some of us, it was that unexpected assistance from a friend. For some of us, it was that random act of kindness from a stranger. For some of us, it was that moment when it just seemed like all of the stars aligned and finally things began to go our way. Well, I have to admit, and I will confess like Peter today, that I'm not too educated, nor am I too stuck up to believe that God can add a but in our lives. For I believe it's at these moments when God intervenes. Why? Because God is that kind of conjunction. 
somebody here, somebody here, your heart was breaking, but God stepped in and provided you just with the strength that you needed. Somebody here, you made choices that you now regret. Oh, but God stepped in and protected you from yourself. Somebody here, you may have felt the pain of your own crucifixion Friday, and you thought that the stone was going to remain in front of your situation. But God sent an angel and rolled the stone away, and now you have new life and a new possibility. That's what Easter morning means, new possibilities, new life, new chances. We are a resurrecting people. I'm here to say that God is that omnipresent conjunction. God is the impartial and that connects us all together. And God is the intervening but that will change the direction of all of our lives. God can always rewrite the story. Oh, when I think about how God intervenes, when I think about how God acts in human history, I'm reminded of one of my son's favorite bedtime stories. It involves the Greek titan and champion of humanity, Prometheus. Oh, it was Prometheus's love for humanity that was expansive. Prometheus's love for the people was inclusive. Thus, it was Prometheus that was trying to keep Zeus from unleashing havoc on people. Zeus, Zeus tried to outwit Prometheus. Some of you may remember this is when Zeus, Zeus gave a jeweled box to Prometheus's nitwit brother. And that nitwit brother then gave the box to his self-indulgent bride, Pandora. And Prometheus looked at his brother and he looked at his bride and he said, no matter what, don't you ever open that box. Yet the two couldn't help themselves. They couldn't help themselves, and as soon as they opened it, it unleashed all of the ills of the world on humanity. Evil, mistrust, despair, and pain all seemed lost. It seems like Zeus had won. But Prometheus had a feeling that this day was coming. And so when nobody was looking, Prometheus went and he placed hope down deep in the bottom of the box. For Prometheus knew that no matter the suffering, no matter the heartbreak, no matter the pains, perils, problems, and perplexities of life, humanity can still endure as long as we have hope. And this is the message of the cross. God's love is inclusive, yet we can also have hope that God's love will always intervene. And this is why we can stand here as a resurrected, hope-filled people on this Easter Sunday morning and we can sing, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters God lifted me now safe in my love lifted me yes. 
An inclusive love lifted me when nothing else could help. Love lifted me. Why? Because God's love is impartial. God's love is inclusive. And God's love will always, especially on Easter Sunday morning, God's love will intervene. Come on, let the church say amen.